section eighteen of heroines of fiction by william dean howells this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter eighteen thackeray's ethel newcombe and charlotte bronte's jane eyre there are so many of thackeray's women that to choose any eight or ten of them must seem like ignoring as many others equally worthy of study the reader may demand in fit dudgeon why this one or that one whom he has always thought a significant figure is left out and against such censure it is not easy to provide all one can say is that by universal consent such and such women have been chosen the novelist's great heroines and that these must represent him even if injustice seems done to others in the newcombs for instance there are half a score of women who will come to mind at the mention of the novel lady q and her daughter lady anne newcombe mrs mackenzie and her daughter rosie miss honeyman madame de florac mrs pendennis mrs hobson newcombe lady clara pullen these all have claims nicely differenced and distinguished and yet it is ethel newcombe who remains first and has the largest share of our interest if not our sympathy one it seems to me that in ethel newcombe the author has done his utmost to imagine a character of noble but not unnatural beauty he has fancied her of a station of life in which her qualities could best show themselves with the light of the great world upon them he has not pretended that she was at once perfect or ever perfect but he has wished her to appear capable of learning from her own faults and from the errors and miseries of others he is admirably successful in making us feel her growth she really grows in our knowledge from a young unformed girl to a mature woman who has come to the knowledge of right and wrong by the use of her own sense and has finally chosen the right through a love of it her youthful love-making with clive newcombe is pretty and winning though she gives him up at the bidding of the world in the terrible old lady q her grandmother and for a while she thinks she cares more for rank and splendour than for love she might not so unjustly have them with clive married but it is of her own motion from the instruction of the unhappiness she has seen so near her in her brother's marriage that she breaks with the marquis of farintosh whom she does not love and prefers a life of such usefulness as she can lead in her family with her kind dull capricious mother and her younger brothers and sisters she is never an insipid saint and she fights evil in her wicked brother as well as issues it chiefly employing the powers of sarcasm with which she is gifted she is rather satirical with most people and is not afraid to measure wits even with her grandmother who has a very trenchant wit and wields it so mercilessly that all the rest of her family are in terror of her in short ethel sums up in her character the virtues and defects of the highest type of thackeray women and as women go the type is not so low as might be though he used to be accused of such a cynical hatred of women her greatest fault as a creation is that she talks too much in the interest of the author for the pleasure of the reader i am far from implying that a woman in choosing the better part cannot express herself with a breadth and depth worthy of any novelist but if she is really doing it for herself she will do it in her own way and as it were in her own words 
this is certainly not the case with ethel newcombe in her last conversation with the marquis of farintosh where her simple-heartedly selfish lover not having the author or reader in mind talks straight from himself and is perfectly mean and natural it is not that ethel says anything out of character but the critic who reads that scene can hardly help feeling its aesthetic deficiency in the sort i have suggested two of course the psychological climax of the story is in the chapter detailing the conversations at paris between ethel and madame de florac ethel and clive and finally clive and madame de florac where the girl definitely refuses her cousin after long wishing to accept him and after more or less indecisive love-making between them the voices are not the very voices of life nor the words the very words but the thoughts and feelings are and at times the voices and the words are inevitably the writer who has written much becomes confirmed in his manner and it is not surprising that there is so much but that there is so little of the thackeray manner in these conversations which are based upon a familiar thackeray convention here is the make-believe that an old woman like madame de florac has kept a love disappointment alive through a long loveless marriage and is promoting against all the french proprieties the meeting of her lost lover's son with the girl he loves out of a romantic tenderness for her own past here is the clever aristocratic girl who is better than her aristocracy as we poor plebeians like to fancy some aristocrats and who has her dreams that come and go of well losing the world for love here is the youth handsome witty gifted who is tempting her to the better part the girl is letting her heart go and he is drawing it and in the background is the old woman with her romantic wishes for his success the lovers talk it all over with openness on clive's part and on ethel's with at least transparent insincerity and the result is like the conception more natural than the representation as mostly happens with thackeray though in this case the representation is unusually good i have been reading that chapter over again and i am not sure but that in ethel's final speech the author has insinuated a fine satire of her which escaped the unspectacled eyes of my youth if this is true he has done it so delicately that it does not audibly clash with the romantic sentiment of the closing passage between clive and madame de florac ethel you spoke quite scornfully of palaces just now clive i won't say a word about the the regard which you express for me i think you have it indeed i do but it were best not said clive best for me perhaps not to own that i know it in your speeches my poor boy and you will please not make any more or i never can see you or speak to you again never you forgot one part of a girl's duty obedience to her parents they would never agree to my marrying any one below any one whose union would not be advantageous in a worldly point of view i never would give such pain to the poor father or to the kind soul who has never said a harsh word to me since i was born my grandmamma too is very kind in her way i came to her of my own free will when she said that she would leave me her fortune do you think it was for myself alone that i was glad my father's passion is to make an estate and all my brothers and sisters will be but slenderly portioned lady q said she would help them if i came to her it is the welfare of those little people that depends upon me clive 
now do you see brother why you must speak to me so no more there is the carriage god bless you dear clive clive sees the carriage drive away after miss newcombe has entered it without once looking up to the window where he stands when it is gone he goes to the opposite windows of the salon which are open towards the garden the chapel music begins to play from the convent next door as he hears it he sinks down his head in his hands enter madame de florac she goes to him with anxious looks what hast thou my child hast thou spoken clive very steadily yes madame de f and she loves thee i know she loves thee clive you hear the organ of the convent madame de f ca tu clive i might as well hope to marry one of the sisters of yonder convent dear lady he sinks down again and she kisses him clive i never had a mother but you seem like one madame de f mon fils oh mon fils this is not melodrama but it is the highest mood of the theatre a supreme moment of genteel comedy that sends the playgoers home fancying they have been profoundly stirred for the rest does not ethel talk a little too like an amateur of eighteenth-century english who has been doing french exercises yes she is a genuine girl of the late forenoon or early afternoon of our century a living personality a true character and a noble spirit in spite of her world if you compare her with some of the bad characters of the book you may say she is not so good as mrs mackenzie the mother-in-law of clive but then there are very very few women in fiction as good as that horrible shrew who afflicts the reader with the same quality of pain that clive and his father suffer from her she is wonderfully done she surpasses in her narrower sphere even becky sharp and no goodness can aesthetically hold a candle to her badness but i incline to think that the goodness of ethel is artistically better than the badness of lady q and ethel's own touches of badness are extremely good i am not sure that she is as perfectly done as poor slight sick rosa clive's wife but she was much harder to do three the heroines of the mid-century english novelists can hardly be considered in a distinct chronological order the greatest of these novelists were contemporaries and were synchronously writing the books by which they were best known bulwer was still thought a prime talent and was producing his most pretentious fiction when dickens was of world-wide fame and thackeray always of less popularity than dickens had taken a higher place by this time kingsley had written alton locke and was soon to write hypatia george eliot was beginning to make her way towards the primacy which she finally achieved charles reed was coruscating with all the rockets and pinwheels and roman candles of his pseudo-realism trollope a truer artist than any of them was making himself known by the novels which until we had mr thomas hardy's and mr george moore's reflected english life with a fidelity unapproached since that of jane austen's books mrs gaskell mrs oliphant and others were coming forward in the second order of talents the weird genius who gave us paul farrell had already made her vivid impression from her isolation in the alien keeping of bavaria baroness taubius had sent out that great and beautiful story the initials a product as purely english as if not made in germany in the retrospect these writers seem simultaneous as well as contemporaneous and one can as well be taken up first as another 
but perhaps it will be generally allowed that the bronte sisters especially charlotte and emily have a peculiar right to early mention because of the fresh and emphatic character of their contribution to fiction and i feel it peculiarly fit to speak of charlotte bronte after thackeray because of the malignant era which connected her first novel with his name as a supposed satire of the man whom she idolized as a novelist and because of the noble-minded kindness with which he received the shy girl after she had hurried to london to own jane eyre to her publisher and to deny the monstrous imputation there is somewhere a story of thackeray sitting by while charlotte bronte read with silent tears a cruel review of her book and ignoring her anguish with silent compassion which is enough to make one sorry for not finding his fiction always as great as his nature it makes me feel it in a sort my misfortune that i cannot now give my whole heart and soul in admiration of his work as i used in my younger days it makes me almost regret the more perfect models of art which i have since known in jane austen in hawthorne in george eliot in anthony trollope in thomas hardy in george moore in zola and maupassant and flaubert in turgenev in tolstoy in galdos and valdez how shall i venture to say then that no heroine of thackeray's except becky sharp seems to me quite so alive as the jane heir of charlotte bronte whom i do not class with him intellectually any more than i class her artistically with the great novelists i have mentioned she was the first english novelist to present the impassioned heroine impassioned not in man's sense but woman's sense in which love purifies itself of sensuousness without losing fervour four from the beginning to the ending of her story jane eyre moves a living and consistent soul from the child we know grow the girl and woman we know vivid energetic passionate as well as good conscientious devoted it was a figure which might have well astonished and alarmed the little fastidious world of fifty years ago far more smug and complacent than the larger world of to-day and far more intolerant of any question of religious or social convention and it is no wonder that the young author should have been attainted of immorality and infidelity not to name that blacker crime impropriety in fact it must be allowed that jane eyre does go rather far in a region where women's imaginations are politely supposed not to wander and the frank recognition of the rights of love as love and its claims in rochester as paramount to those of righteous self-will in st john is still a little startling it is never pretended that rochester is a good man or that he is in any accepted sense worthy of the girl who listens so fearlessly to his account of the dubious life he has led the most that can be said for him is that he truly values and loves her and this is his best his sole defence in his attempt to marry her while he still has a wife living under his own roof a hopeless and horrible maniac when the attempt is frustrated at the altar and nothing remains for jane eyre but to be his on the only possible terms or to fly it is not fain that she is not for a moment tempted she loves him and she is tempted but only for a moment and then she chooses the right owning that the wrong has allured her with a courage that was once very novel but without a suggestion of the puerency which has often characterized later fiction especially the fiction of women in dealing with like situations in this as in other essentials jane eyre is unsparingly human and when jane has got away from rochester and finds herself 
unexpectedly among her kindred and even rich and independent she does not prefer a loveless marriage hallowed by the most exalted motives with her cousin st john but elects rather to go back and seek out the man she loves and when she has found him opportunely widowed by the disaster that has maimed and blinded him to marry him she offers no defence and one must confess that the close of the story is not ideal no part of the story in fact is so good as the beginning where the hapless little orphan substantiates herself to us in the hard keeping of her cruel aunt and cousins and in my second reading of the novel i have not been so much moved by the love-making between jane and rochester as i must have been when i first read it fifty years ago rochester is of the forceful type of lover and he seems scarcely so interesting as the plain little governess of his natural daughter thinks him and as a whole contemporaneous generation of young girls once thought him he is passed with his kind and with several successive kinds but in his time as i have said he was a true lover and he began to be in love with jane as soon as she with him he likes her better than the insolent young ladies of his own rank whom he asks to his house and with the proudest and coldest of whom he has some thoughts of committing bigamy before he attempts it with jane but neither at this time nor at that last time when she seeks him out blind and maimed is he so satisfactory in his part of hero as she in hers of heroine perhaps a hero who has been both punished and martyred is a little difficult to the imagination and a hero who is condescending in his love is not much easier but before this there is a signal moment when the lovers are unconsciously trembling towards each other and are precipitated into consciousness of their passion by one of the grisly catastrophes of the story which is illustrative of character in each and i think that at least its older readers will like to see them in this moment again though some young readers may think them a little old-fashioned meeting them in it for the first time jane has already heard a wild laugh from that part of the house where the crazy wife is confined unknown to her when on a certain night the lunatic makes her escape from her keeper and the girl has gone to bed with vague melancholy thoughts of rochester but it was not fated that i should sleep that night a dream had scarcely approached my ear when a demoniac laugh low suppressed and deep was uttered as it seemed at the very keyhole of my chamber door the head of my bed was near the door and i thought at first the goblin laugher stood at my bedside or rather crouched by my pillow but i rose looked round and could see nothing while as i gazed the unnatural sound was reiterated and i knew it came from behind the panels something gurgled and moaned ere long steps retreated up the gallery toward the third-story staircase there was a candle burning just outside left on the matting of the gallery i was amazed to perceive the air quite dim as if filled with smoke something creaked it was a door ajar and that door was mr rochester's and the smoke rushed in a cloud from thence in an instant i was within the chamber tongues of flame darted round the bed the curtains were on fire in the midst of the blaze and vapour mr rochester lay stretched motionless in deep sleep wake wake i cried i shook him but he only murmured and turned the smoke had stupefied him not a moment could be lost the very sheets were kindling i rushed to his basin and ewer fortunately the one was wide and the other was deep and both were filled with water i heaved them up and deluged the bed 
and its occupant the hiss of the quenched element the splash of the shower-bath i had liberally bestowed roused mr rochester at last though it was now dark i knew he was awake because i heard him fulminating strange anathemas at finding himself lying in a pool of water is there a flood he cried no sir i answered but there has been a fire in the name of all the elves of christendom is that jane eyre have you plotted to drown me i will fetch you a candle sir and in heaven's name get up somebody has plotted something you cannot too soon find out who and what it is there i am up now but at your peril you fetch a candle yet wait two minutes till i get into some dry garments if any dry there be yes here is my dressing-gown now run i did run i brought the candle which still remained in the gallery he took it from my hand surveyed the bed blackened and scorched the sheets drenched the carpet round swimming in water what is it and who did it he asked i briefly related to him what had transpired he listened very gravely his face as i went on expressed more concern than astonishment you have a shawl on wrap it about you and sit down in the armchair there i will put it on i am going to leave you a few minutes i shall take the candle i must pay a visit to the second story don't move remember or call any one he went i watched the light withdraw he passed up the gallery very softly unclosed the staircase door with as little noise as possible shut it after him and the last ray vanished i was left in total darkness a very long time elapsed i was on the point of risking mr rochester's displeasure by disobeying his orders when a light once more gleamed dimly on the gallery wall and i heard his unshod feet tread the matting he re-entered pale and very gloomy i found it all out said he setting his candle down on the washstand it is as i thought you are no talking fool say nothing about it i will account for this state of affairs pointing to the bed and now retire to your own room i shall do very well on the sofa in the library for the rest of the night good night then sir said i departing what he exclaimed are you quitting me already and in that way why you have saved my life and you walk past me as if we were mutual strangers at least shake hands he held out his hand i gave him mine he took it first in one then in both his i knew he continued you would do me good in some way at some time i saw it in your eyes when i first beheld you their expression and smile did not again he stopped did not he proceeded hastily strike delight to my inmost heart for nothing people talk of mutual natural sympathies i have heard of good genie there are grains of truth in the wildest fable my cherished preserver good night strange energy was in his voice strange fire was in his look i'm glad i happened to be awake i said and then i was going what will you go i am cold sir cold yes and standing in a pool go then jane go but he still retained my hand and i could not free it i bethought myself of an expedient i think i hear mrs fairfax move sir said i well leave me he relaxed his fingers and i was gone five old-fashioned i have suggested but now after reading this passage i find that hardly the word it is old-fashioned only in the sense of being very simple and of a quaint sincerity the fact is presented the tremendous means are used with almost childlike artlessness but the result is of high novelty few would have had the courage to deal so frankly with the situation to chance its turning ludicrous or would have had the skill to unfold its fine implications of tenderness and keep them undamaged by the matter-of-fact details but charlotte bronte did all this and did it out of the resources of her own unique experience of life 
which never presented itself in the light of common day but came to her through strange glooms and in alternations of native solitude and alien multitude at haworth and in brussels the whole story so deeply of nature is steeped in the supernatural and just as paradoxically the character of jane eyre lacks that final projection from the author which is the supreme effect of art only because she feels it so intensely that she cannot detach it from herself End of section eighteen